Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. We're so excited to have uh, everybody here today with our great uh, speaker, Dr. Bernice Lerner. Uh, Dr. Bernice Lerner um, is an author of All the Horrors of War, A Jewish Girl, A British Doctor, and The Liberation of Bergen Belsen, and other writings of the Holocaust on a virtue of ethics. She is a former dean and adult of the adult learning at Hebrew College and a lecturer of the Holocaust on character education. Uh, Dr. Lerner has gracefully uh, brought in a discount code for anybody who is online or in person to one of her books and it is an incredible gift that she brings with us. Not only that has she also offered to bring in the ability of signing the book that you ordered. Um, if you give her your address and she will make sure to do that. Thank you so much uh, to Dr. Lerner. We're super excited to have you. Thank you for coming this evening. Thank you for everyone who attended. I'm going to talk to you this evening about an unusual kind of topic related to the Holocaust that maybe you haven't heard before. It's the ethics of rescue, the true stories behind Bergen-Belsen's liberation. And you know that we commemorated um, the liberation of Auschwitz at International Holocaust Remembrance Day, right? January 27th is when the Russians liberated Auschwitz. Um, you should know that Auschwitz was not the first death camp to be liberated, nor was it the last. In fact, when the Russians came into Auschwitz, uh, a few days before, they, the camp had been evacuated. There were 60,000 people who were put on this death march away from Auschwitz. And when they came into the camp and all the comp major complexes, Auschwitz I, Auschwitz proper, Auschwitz II, Birkenau, where they had the four main gas chambers, and Auschwitz III, where it was Buna Monowitz, a labor camp, there were a total of all those three, there were only remaining 8,000 inmates. And those were the sick people who could not go, who could not walk on the death march. So they had a job to um, to liberate that camp. But um, I'm going to talk to you now about what happened, really. What happened at the place where the majority of the inmates were at the end of the war? Where was the largest death camp at the end of the war? And that was Bergen-Belsen. And that is gonna be the topic of my talk tonight, the ethics of rescue. How, when, they, when the British Second Army came into this hell, remember that people were on these death marches and then they were put on these open wagons, cattle wagons, and then they were dumped in various places deep in Germany, away from the allied liberating forces because no one was to fall alive into allied hands. That was Hitler's order. No one was to fall alive. And people were being dumped. And I'm going to talk about the camp where the largest number of people were found, were deposited at the end of their death march. So the people I am going to be talking to you about are people who managed to evade the gas chambers at Auschwitz, managed to survive slave labor, managed to survive the death march. In January of 1945, when Auschwitz was liberated, there were about 714,000 inmates still alive in the concentration camp system, working for the German war effort in munitions factories or other forms of slave labor. About It's estimated about 250,000 died on these marches. It was bitter cold. They didn't have adequate clothing or footwear, no food. They were being shot if they couldn't keep up, if they were too exhausted. So... The people who were deposited in these certain camps, Flossenburg, Dachau, Bergen-Belsen, had already endured so much, but these places were not equipped to deal with this mass of humanity that was being dumped there. So I became really interested in Bergen-Belsen for a very personal reason. Um, like, why am I here? Because my mother, who was just a kid, survived Bergen-Belsen. And she had fallen unconscious at the end of the war. She had been very severely beat up. And she could not tell me precisely how her life was saved, how she was rescued. 
And I became very interested in that. And I became very interested, therefore, in who organized this whole thing? Who organized the rescue? And that was this man, Glenn Hughes. Um, Hugh Llewellyn, Glenn Hughes, who was at the time in a very high position. He was deputy director of medical services for the British Second Army. And I set out to really find out more about Glenn Hughes because it turned out he was a really compelling character, almost like an Oscar Schindler type character in some ways, in that he was very, he, he felt his role in the narrative history of the Jewish people. And he was, he became very, um, he became good friends with some of the survivors. He hung around Bergen-Belsen after the rescue and relief. He kept going back there and he kept, he wanted to see what became of these people after they had some nourishment, after they were slowly coming back to life. And he had this soul turning experience that really shaped the rest of his life. So I became, I wanted to write about Glenn Hughes, but people kept asking me about my mom. So I thought, can I tell this as a dual biography? This is quite, I mean, here are people, this is like a 15 year old, this is a 52 year old from completely different backgrounds and walks of life. But then I worked out with my publisher to tell it as in one year, like a race against time rescue story that takes place in the last year of the war. So anyway, um, I'm just showing you the cover of the US version of the book and the UK version on the right. And they had the same images, but they came up with very different concepts for the color, for the cover. And here you can see the UK version to meet in hell. My mom is in full form. She looks well-nourished, but the truth is this was taken about six, seven months after the war. She's very, very sick with TB. Here she is in the top picture. That background is the background where she was. She was in this tuberculosis sanitarium in Northwest Sweden. And there you see Glenn Hughes in his caravan near the Bergen-Belsen camp. He could be working up five different diets for people in various stages of emaciation. He could be thinking about who, who or calling upon help from wherever he could think of because he was really understaffed. What I did for the book is I tell the meat of the book is that last year of the war. It's told over four seasons, spring 1944, through the spring, summer, fall, winter, and then the fifth season is the point at which my two protagonists converge in this hell in Northwest Germany. It's sandwiched in between um, a few pages about the Belzen trial because it was really significant and that sort of sets the tone for what happened in this place. And here's an image, this is from an Army Talks magazine from November, 1945, just a few months after the war, immediately preceding the Nuremberg trials. This was the first trial to apply international law to these war crimes. And there were 45 defendants, 45 Nazis who were brought to trial. Just to give you an idea, there was about 480 Nazi functionaries in Bergen-Belsen at the time of its liberation. Most of them got off scot-free. 80 had to stay in the camp for the handover uh, for, uh, of Bergen-Belsen from the German army to the British army. And that is a whole story of how this Nazi concentration camp was handed over three weeks before the end of the war. An unprecedented decision by Heinrich Himmler in contradicting Hitler's orders and handing the camp over. Himmler who was unhappy with how things were going at Auschwitz in 1942 and demanded that the gas chambers and ovens be more efficient. So it's a very unusual story. And I sandwich it further between a prologue and an epilogue where I, I tell some really important, significant things, both about my mother's background before the war and Glenn Hughes, and then what became of them after? What became of them after this ex extreme experience? What did Glenn Hughes take with him for the rest of his life and my mother. I'm going to give you, this is a map showing where my mother started out. She is from the town of Siget. Has anyone here heard of Ellie Wiesel? Mm -hmm. So Ellie Wiesel was her neighbor and they're from Siget. And then um, this is her journey. And Glenn Hughes starts out in Northern England in the Yorkshire Wolds. And this is his journey. And Bergen-Belsen is in the middle. 
where the two protagonists converge. And I'm going to now just give you a few like spots along the way of this timeline, last year of World War II. So the Yorkshire Wolds were chosen in Northern England because they resembled the topography in Normandy where the allies were going to invade, where the British were going to invade. Now, Glyn Hughes was high up in the, in the medical services, the Royal Army Medical Corps. So what he was concerned with was making sure, he was a stalwart for preparedness, making sure that all of the nurses and doctors and medical orderlies could quickly take down and reassemble casualty clearing stations, regimental age, aid posts. He, he was really a big believer in practice. And yes, you're going to have to improvise every step of the way, but he had the surgeries down to a fraction of a second, how long a maxillofacial surgery should take. He was prepared. The British medical services were really top notch. And just, I'm reading a book now about uh, Russia during the war. And, and I know a little bit about Germany and how their medical services went. And if a soldier got wounded, they were, could have been left to their own devices. It was really horrible. He was, just so you know, he was really into in believer in practice and readiness for any situation. And then I'm going to take you to Siget. Now, very sadly, we don't have a single photograph of my mother, her siblings, her parents, anyone in the family from before the war. One, you know, but all I could do really was plumb my mother's memory. So at one point I had her draw a map of where she lived and she lived, it was in between Timar Utsa, which was like Jew Street. This was a poor area, although she might tell you that some of the people like at the end of the block, the family, their family had indoor plumbing and they were very wealthy. It was in between Tima Utsa and Kigya Utsa, which is Snake Street. And her apartment was over here. And Ellie Wiesel's house was about over here. So it was like a few minute walk. And the temple, which is now a gas station, was over here. I went back to Siget. I went there for the, for the first time um, right before the pandemic. And I can tell you that I knew I was with um, a group of uh, descendants of survivors of Siget. And one of them was Alicia Wiesel, Ellie Wiesel's son. And he told us that when he had come earlier with his father, it, his father was like seeing ghosts. And his father told him there were two Sigets, Siget Min HaShamayim in the heavens and Siget as it exists today. Because you can't really cre recreate the Jewish atmosphere. The Jews were, four, there were 12,000 Jews. They were 40% of the population. The Shabbat was in the atmosphere. You practically breathed it in. So I couldn't see that. But on the other hand, the streets didn't move. The mountains didn't move. It's beautiful, beautiful location. So Siget means island surrounded by uh, mountains. So I could kind of trace the steps of stories my mother had told me, whether she went hiking up Sullivan Hill as an 11 year old, I could try to do that. It was really hard. It was really far. And I could try to, I could trace the steps that the Jewish people were, were taken when they had to go from like where she lived to the train station. So now I'm going to skip ahead to another point in the timeline, which is June 6, 1944. This day marked, it was D-Day. It was the most magnificent armada, 7,000 ships, the Canadians, Americans, uh, the British landed on this surprise invasion on the coast of Normandy. 150,000 troops, fierce fighting. And this just shows the, the beaches that they landed on. And what's really significant that you should know is that 4,414 soldiers were killed that day. The majority actually were Americans. And they were killed in this really fierce fighting. And every day thereafter, there was also terrible fighting in Normandy. It took a long time to break out of the beachhead and to really penetrate France and and to make progress. It took a long while to um, defeat the very ferocious panzer troops and other uh, divisions that were being brought from Germany to fight. But every day, nevertheless, even with the terrible casualties, the number of dead soldiers of Allied soldiers decreased. Whereas on that same day in 
June 6, 1944, in Auschwitz, more than double the number of innocent human beings were killed in the gas chambers, and that number remained that way through the through July. And of course, the killing continued. This was the Hungarian deportation in the spring of 1944. By this point already, the world knew what was going on. All the world leaders knew what was happening. 90% of the Polish Jews have already been killed out. Jews from all over had already been deported from Czechoslovakia, from France, from Italy. Holland had already been taken to death camps. And Auschwitz, Hitler looked at the last unmolested mass of Jews in Nazi-occupied Europe and pinpointed that was the Hungarian Hungary. And the Hung originally, Hungary was holding back. They didn't want to give out their Jews. Nikolaj Horthy, the regent, didn't want to give away the Jews. But there's a whole story of how things turned in the, in the spring of 1944. In March, actually, 19th, uh, Germany invaded Hungary, took over. And meanwhile, in Auschwitz, in Birkenau, there were new parts being brought in to, for the ovens to be fitted so they could handle the masses and the killing. <laughs> the, rail, the rail spur was extended into the Birkenau camp so people would not have to walk far to the gas chambers and the preparations were being made. And the people who were in the dark, who didn't know where they were, where they were, where they were being taken, were these Hungarian Jews from the provinces. And my mother was in the first zone to be taken in middle in the middle of May. I think she arrived May 18th, 1944. And here you can just see the arrivals. This these photographs are from the um, album of an SS officer that a survivor, um, what was her name? Lily, not sure of her last name. Her name was Lily. She found this. She was in some place after the war. She was in the room that had been occupied by an SS officer, and she found this album in one of the drawers. And the album, the photographs were taken by an SS officer who wanted to show how quickly and smoothly the killing process was going on, how, how they did it, how calm it was, how efficient it was. The unintended consequence is that these photos, these rare photos are evidence of what really went on. And if you look closely, if you really zoomed in, you could see like a mother or a grandmother talking to a child. You could see men turning to talk to each other. They're separated. They don't know where they've arrived. Where are we? Where is this place? They don't, they hadn't heard about Auschwitz. They, some of them maybe heard rumblings of killings of Jews in Poland, but they really didn't know where they were being taken. And this photograph is kind of cut off, but if it would, you saw the whole one, there'd be a, other people online from the other end. So I always wondered, like, if you were, the SS officer decided by a flick of a thumb, either you're going to the gas or you're going to temporarily be spared because you may be needed to work. So right and left meant different things depending on the direction you are coming from on the line. And here you can see, at first, people arrive in these cattle wagons, and it's kind of chaos, chaotic. This is actually this album was all take was taken from this um, transport from one of the Hungarian provinces, a town, uh, one of the Hungarian towns called Beregsaz. It was a couple of weeks after my mother had already arrived, and these men in striped uniforms—they're the Sonder Commando. And I had there's a, I'm sure there's a big story to be told about what happened on the ramps, and I think there was a lot of defiance and resistance because the Sandra commando very often whispered to people. They would whisper things, directives, just really quick. Young mother, give the baby to the grandmother because they knew that the grandmother and the baby had no chance of survival, whereas a young, strong woman might survive. And Elie Wiesel writes about that in his book. Someone on the ramp told him, say you're 16, don't say, or say you're older, say you're older. So a little bit of instructions and here are some more pictures from Auschwitz. And my mother would say, she would look at this picture on the bottom left and she'd say, oh, those women were lucky. They had kerchiefs on their head. We didn't have kerchiefs. We had nothing. And these pictures are from the warehouses 
that were collectively, I think there were 34 of them, and they were called Canada. Why Canada? Because Canada is such a vast country and people were bringing in so many things. I mean, you had transports and transports. 430,000 Jews came from Hungary to Auschwitz in May, June, and July of 1944. 80 to 90% were gassed upon arrival. So just, so they brought with them, they didn't know where they would be taken. They brought with them hairbrushes and strollers and whatever, whatever it was they needed, all kinds of clothing. And if you were an inmate, a young, strong inmate, and you were lucky, you were picked to work in Canada, sorting the goods to be shipped back to the Third Reich. This is a map of Auschwitz. You can see here's gas chambers two and three and gas chambers four and five. Gas chamber one was in Auschwitz one, Auschwitz proper. And they were working day and night. There was, the sky was constantly red and there were ashes in the sky. And it was a terrible smell of burning bodies. It was constant. And this these were the barracks. I think the Hungarian women were here. There was like 38,000. And my mother must have been on one of them. But And I think that there's different sections. There was a section for twins that wasn't far away. So now we're going to skip to the British side of the story, to Glenn Hughes's side of the story. And all I'm going to do now is show you along the way, as he's fighting, as he's going in to Germany, finally breaching the fortress of Germany, uh, I just give, I'm giving you a little snapshot of some things that were in his boxes and boxes of archives. So this just shows you here, this is medical chart, D plus one, D plus two, D plus three, where he's outlining D day plus one, D day plus two. How many people, how many Neptune beach casualties were? How many were drowned? And he was just keeping track of everything, all the details he believed in, like drilling down to the finest detail. That was the success in any operation. And here's just, it shows, I think his handwriting is fascinating, but it shows here the general hospitals that he was, how many beds he was commandeering and where they were, Brussels, Antwerp, and all the places where he where they had to take over hospital beds for the wounded soldiers. And also he was very involved in the evacuation back to England and special units that had to be brought in, whether maxillofacial surgeons, transfusion, surgical team for chest surgeries, and just masterminding this whole operation having many assistant directors of medical services reporting to him. And here's some just photos from the fighting, from the cheering in towns that were liberated and actually from the battle. And here you see in the town of Lingen, there are German soldiers actually surrendering to the British. And here you see a little bit of British humor everywhere, signs for the soldiers. Between these points, your enemy lies and he, like you, can use his eyes. So show no light and he won't get wise. It took a long time. It took longer than was predicted by Churchill, by Roosevelt, by Patton. It just took a long time to finally breach the fortress of Germany. You know about the Battle of the Bulge in December. There were, there were surprise attacks. There were obstacles. Finally, finally, they're fighting in the vicinity of Bergen-Belsen. Himmler is, decides stranger Truth is stranger than fiction story. He's actually convinced partly by his masseuse to hand over the concentration camp. And the, the Germans also realized that it was a real health hazard to the people living in the area in Northwest Germany and the Lunabergis because there were at least three epidemics raging in the camp, gastroenteritis, tuberculosis, typhus, plus every disease known to humankind. People were dumped there without adequate food, water, medical facilities. The last five days, they were given no food and no water, nothing. There was nothing. People were languishing and dying. And again, these were the really strong inmates, right? These were the young and strong who were picked to work for Hitler. And finally, April 12th, there's a truce. It's signed and they have, it takes another three days for them to come into the camp. And I'll just tell you one little story. So a lot of these images evoke for me things my mother shared with me. 
right? So here you see the main road bisecting the camp. There's three compounds on one, two on the other. And on April 12th, when they signed the truce, the SS in Bergen-Belsen realized that they wanted, they had to do something to clean up the camp a little bit before the British entered. There were piles of corpses everywhere. There were people inside the huts that were dead, living, that dead were lying in the same huts as the living. It was out of control. It was out of control. And no one who was there, no survivor of it, no liberator of it, would say, would say to you that you could possibly imagine it. That's how bad it was. So April 12th, April 13th, April 14th, what they do is they take the still ambulatory inmates, still able to walk, and they have to drag down the main road to the end to a mass grave, those who have died. So my mother, one night, we're down in the laundry room and she's telling me about this. She's talking to me. She probably hadn't told anybody about this. And she's opening up to me and she's sharing with me things about Auschwitz and things about Bergen-Belsen. And she, I, I remember I used to watch her while she was ironing. So she was ironing. She puts on the iron and she demonstrated for me how she, who was, she said she was half dead. She stretched out her arms behind her and she had to carry, drag people who were dead and some weren't even dead. Some were 90% dead. Some were still breathing. She had to drag them down to the mass graves. She was forced to do this. She was 15. She's really just a kid. And I don't think that that memory of that night in the laundry room will always be with me. And of course, that that would always stay with her. That's a life changing thing. Yes. Uh, how, uh, at what stage of your life and her life did, did that conversation happen? Did I must have been. I think no, 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 no. My mom, my mom never told me like horrors or things like that when I was a child. She probably told it to me when I was thirteen or fourteen, around the age she was during the war. And she would always preface it by saying, "I don't want to give you nightmares." But then I would ask a question, and she would always answer it. So, um, what happened was, people kept dying on the job, and they had to stop this cleanup effort. So when the British entered, these are just a few images of the squalor and the things that came upon. And again, no picture could really show it. But and I, I tremble a little bit showing you these pictures because these are, you know, real people and you want to respect them, but you can't really see anyone's face. And this picture on the bottom right also reminded me of a story because Glenn Hughes, remember I told you that he was a stalwart for preparedness. He came into Bergen-Belsen. The first day it was liberated, April 15th, did a survey of the camp, broke down crying. He was a, he was a war hero in World War I. He did amazing things. He ran into the battlefields to, to rescue soldiers or hide them in shell holes. And, here, and he was, also did amazing things in World War II. And here he broke down crying because as prepared as he was, this was shocking. They knew they would come across concentration camps, POW camps, they never could have imagined they would come across a catastrophe like this. And he, he very accurately estimated the first day that there was about 55 to 60,000 people in the camp, 25,000 needed immediate medical attention. So, so anyway, so it took a while to get, to get people, to get person power, Who's going to help organize this? Who's going to help uh, people? The, there are battles being fought all throughout Northwest Germany. All of his regimental aid posts, everyone was tied up. All the casualty clearing stations were tied up. So what they had to do the first few days of the liberation was leave Hungarian guards in charge. These were Hungarian guards who were working for the Germans. Realize, realize that this liberation was not Oh, the liberators are here. The sun is shining. The sky is blue. Life is, I'm free. I'm free. It wasn't like that. The only ones who could really greet the liberators with some amount of energy were those 
who had arrived within a couple of days of the liberation, at most five, six days. People like my mother, who had been in the camp already for one month, she arrived mid-March, they were almost at death's door. They were, they were just languishing and they didn't have the muscles to move. So anyway, what the British did is they left Hungarian guards in charge. And the Hungarian guards, they, they, some of the British Tommies who came in were very generous and started handing out whatever food they had on them, spam, chocolate or whatever. 2,000 people died on account of their first meal because their intestines were so shriveled and they couldn't handle the food that was, and you know, sometimes you had scenarios where some soldiers realized it and they started running into barracks saying, don't eat, don't eat. It was a very difficult situation to try to save lives. And Glenn Hughes wanted to try from the beginning to save as many lives as possible. Anyway, they left the Hungarians in charge, some women, ran to mounds of potatoes. They knew where the mounds of potatoes were. They dared risking. My mother was one of them. And here you see some women baking potatoes. Um, they were able to get them. So my mother's friend got shot in the leg. I mean, the Hungarian guards were shooting at the people running for the potatoes after the liberation. So you get an idea what kind of chaos there was on the ground. Anyway, these people are cooking potatoes and they are completely inured to the background, to the people laying there dead. Here it shows some of the people who were um, online for the for the food. They tried to water down things. They tried to figure out, the British tried to figure out what kind of soups or stews or some light fare to bring into the camp. And on the upper left-hand side, this picture is kind of interesting. You can see a girl and she has a square cut out of the back of her coat almost all of the people had come from labor camps. And at the labor camps, they got shipments of clothes from Auschwitz and all of the coats had had to be defaced. They had to have some kind of marking, either a big red X or a big square cut out of the back. Lest any inmate try to escape, they should be easily identifiable as half. Third day after the liberation, the British 11th Light Field Ambulance came to the camp and pitched a dump of tentage. The idea being that um, the British called these barracks, uh, here you could see in the background, they called them huts. The idea being that the huts were so overcrowded with the dead, with the living, you can get the people who could still walk a little bit, get them into tents, so then they could get maybe a sip of water to the people in the huts. So they, they set up these tents all over the place. And this war artist, he was only like 34 years old at the time, Leslie Cole, but, and I don't always think that, it's very hard with art, does it really show, but I think he captures something of the anguish of the, of the survivors. So anyway, you see the pitch, the dump, the tents that are there. And what is really significant for me is the distance from the tents to the huts. Like it might not, you might not know, like you look at these pictures, you might not know what to make of them. But to me, of course, I have a story from my mother. And she was in a, t a tent with four others. She got expelled from the tent and had to crawl back to the hut. And that's a whole story. Things are happening among people on the ground, right? People are sort of almost reduced to animalistic kind of behavior. What are you going to do? You have like 17,000 corpses. They had to dig mass graves. There was like no choice. So there were 15 of these. They were about 12 feet deep, 20 to 30 feet wide, 50 to 60 feet long. Here you have Rabbi Leslie Hardman, who was the chaplain with the British Second Army. And he is so upset at how people are being buried helter-skelter. Finally, after a few days, he's joined by Rabbi Isaac Levy. And here they are saying Kaddish by the edge of a, a mass grave. And here you see that the German uh, German SS and Wehrmacht who are in the camp are pressed into service. They have to help clean up the corpses. And in the background here, you see some of the survivors. They were called displaced persons, right? Because that was, they decided immediately, we're calling them displaced persons because we don't know where they're from. Glenn Hughes realized pretty quickly that almost all of them were Jewish and they were from all over 
Lithuania, Poland, Hungary, France. Anyway, so they're helping to clean up the camp. Glenn Hughes insisted that people from the town, the townspeople in the area, come see what their countrymen had wrought. So here you see some of the citizens of the nearby towns and the mayors, the burgermeisters coming to see. And after a grave was filled in, they had, they labeled it grave number two, 5,000. If you were to go to Bergen-Belsen today, you would see beautiful, like big granite or con I don't know what it's made out of, but beautiful big tombstone. But I can tell you that this was guesswork. It was impossible to even count exactly these rough numbers of how many were buried in these mass graves. And you would also see, if you went to Bergen-Belsen today, a beautiful tombstone for Margot and Anne Frank. And I can promise you, this spot is not where they were buried. They were buried in one of the mass graves. Ask you to think about the situation and what is called for. First of all, I this is the, we're talking tonight about the ethics of rescue. So the first thing that people noticed about the leader of the rescue, Glenn Hughes, is his moral motivation to save lives. That He said that like first thing, how are we gonna save as many lives as possible? And it was hard to figure out how to do that because he appointed certain leaders who emerged from among the survivors who had some medical background. There was a dentist, there was, it could have been even a barber, someone who had some knowledge of the human body who could help with the medical rescue. They discerned his compassion and his warmth and they decided they were going to label, they were going to name the complex of hospitals, the Glenn Hughes Hospital. So just file that in your mind that the, there was the Glenn Hughes Hospital in this area in Germany. Readiness to break rules. Glenn Hughes theoretically, actually legally, he was supposed to report to headquarters. He was supposed to report to, report to the higher ups as to what to do. There wasn't time. He just had to improvise and break rules left and right. There was no, there was no other choice to do this morally and ethically. Resourcefulness and innovation. They had to really make do with whatever they had. Think about it. You're going to try to save people, get people, you have 25,000 people who need medical attention. How are you going to get them cleaned up, typhus-free, they're, they're skeletal, they're, they're basically skin and bone, and they have no nourishment. How are you going to feed them? And you have to be very resourceful. Where are you going to find 15,000 clean blankets? Where are you going to find pails? Where are you going to find paleuses, mattresses? Where are you going to find the supplies that you need to set up a hospital? Then decisive action. It wasn't a first choice thing to bury human beings in mass graves. You had to make some very hard choices and hard decisions. Then compassion. These people that the, that the British soldiers were encountering, the British medics, they didn't look like human beings. They had sores all over their bodies. They were just, some girls just had like, holes for eyes. They were vacant looking. They didn't look human. Where were you going to get your wellspring of compassion and treating these people who didn't look like real human beings and they didn't behave like real human beings when they set up the hospital, even then, like people would, they would do crazy things, things you wouldn't think are normal. They would do things like go out to the countryside and smuggle live chickens and put them under their bed or always hide bread under their pillow or always take because they never, you know, they had been in a starvation state for so long. You had, and sometimes when you put some inmates in charge of distributing food to others, they gave only to their friends. I mean, you had to really try to think about the psychology of what was going on with these people and how they couldn't always be fair and how it was dog eat dog situation. And you had to somehow have compassion for, for human beings. And you had to be receptive to unfolding phenomena because as, as things were happening, things were, things were changing and you had to adapt. So one thing they decided pretty early on, though it took a good week to put this in order, is they were going to have some kind of triage system where they were going to evacuate people. The medics were going to go hut, hut by hut 
go inside in a split second, make a decision whether someone had a chance of life at life or not a chance of life. They would take a piece of chalk and mark their forehead. And again, so many things were going on on the ground behind the scenes. One girl might rub her forehead against another so she gets the chalk mark. I mean, or you find a little piece of chalk on the ground and you, you know, but they had to make a decision. Is the person breathing? Are they, do they have, do they have a chance of recovering? And sometimes they made mistakes. They left people for dead who might've had a chance at life. And they took people who were really hadn't very little chance because they didn't have personalized medical attention and, you know, evacu evacuated them. So they went, here are these men from the 11th Light Field Ambulance. They're wearing these like hazmat type suits. They were taking inmates in what they called contaminated ambulances to a stable, uh, a stable about a mile and a half away that was outfitted with tables for cleaning the inmates, for washing them down. So this is the evacuation process. It took a long time. The cavalry stables was dubbed the human laundry. That's what the British called it. And they had 60 tables and they didn't have enough person power. So they had to get German nurses to do the washing down of the inmates, scrubbing them and spraying them with DDT. And then they had to put them in a clean blanket into a clean ambulance to be taken to a makeshift hospital room. So here you see the British, the British um, uh, army personnel supervising the German women who are doing the washing. And you could see there's a pail under each table. And this is how it went down. This was um, a drawing by a woman named Doris Zinkazine, who came to Bergen-Belsen just after its liberation to record the work of the Red Cross. I'm gonna read you now from the bottom, just some approximate numbers. So there were 14,000 patients in the Glyn Hughes Hospital, the largest such facility in Europe on May 19, 1945. Liberation was April 15th. So May 19th, by May 19th, you had 14,000 patients in the hospital. It took two weeks for the backlog of corpses to be buried in Bergen-Belsen. 500 former inmates died each day for a month after the liberation. Glenn Hughes calculated he would be unable to save 13,000 people. 361 British Army soldiers and medical personnel worked in the relief of Bergen-Belsen on April 17th, two days after the liberation. 361 people for 60,000 inmates. 750 to 100,000 sick were processed each day for over three weeks after liberation at the Human Laundry, the place for washing and disinfecting survivors. So I'll just tell you that, I'll tell you how I figured out that my mother was one of the first people to eva be evacuated. She had fallen unconscious. She came to during, while she was in the human laundry and that's a whole other tragic story. But um, she was then, then she was taken to a makeshift hospital room. Just to give you a sense, there were 12 beds in the room every single day, 11 people occupying 11 beds died, they were taken out, and 11 nearly dead were brought in. For three weeks, my mother was hanging on, just hanging on for life. She was willing herself to survive. So this was the situation. And because she could recall that she was in that situation for three weeks, I could calculate that probably she was one of the first people to evacuate. There were 25,000 people who were fit, considered fit, able to walk. If they could walk up, three steps to a truck, they were considered fit. It was very fungible, right? Because you could be taken to the transit and rehabilitation barracks where you were thought to be okay to these formerly Wehrmacht barracks. You could be thought to be okay, but then you could fall sick and wind up in the hospital. It happened both ways. So finally, finally, May 8th comes, Victory in Europe Day is, comes and it passes. Glenn Hughes would not allow the Union Jack, the British flag, to fly on May 8th. He wanted to wait until the very last hut was evacuated and burned down. One by one, each hut had to be burned down because of the typhus germ. So the last day, May 21st, is when the last hut was burned down and there was this huge ceremony. And uh, people who came were soldiers, British soldiers, and 
the people who were healthy enough, the DPs who were healthy enough came to see it. And there's Glenn Hughes giving the order for the wasp gun fire throwers to burn down the hut. And it's kind of interesting the moment because this little country, the Maldives off the coast of Sri Lanka issued these 50th anniversary commemorative stamps. And one of them was of the burning of the last hut in Bergen-Bilsen. Here's the picture and here's the stamp with the effigy of Hitler and the iron cross flag. And the last hut is burned down at Bergen-Bilsen. <clears throat> okay, now I could stop here and take questions or I could continue to uh, another step. What? Talk some more. Okay, so this is another this is another chapter, and it happened pretty quickly. And it's an amazing story of what happened with the people who survived Bergen-Belsen. Now, remember, they lost sisters, they lost brothers, they lost parents, they lost some of them lost spouses, some of them lost children, and they're mourning. They're mourning these losses. At the same time, there's this human, there's this resilience. There's this drive to rebuild and they immediately start, they form a community. Where are they gonna go? The British want them to be repatriated. Everybody go home, go home, go to Poland, go. But there were no homes, unless they were from maybe France or Holland. They were, most of them had no homes in Eastern Europe to go back to. So they started to form a community and waiting, waiting, waiting for the gates of Palestine to open so they could at least go to a homeland for the Jewish people. They were really just, they were in this holding period. So they, the rabbis realized that a lot of the people didn't know the fate of the, their spouses. Most of the people who survived were like young and strong, like most of them, the vast majority were in their twenties or early thirties. A lot of them had been married, but they didn't know what happened to their wife or their husband. They had no idea. And if they didn't know but they met someone and they wanted to get married because people wanted to pair up right away. There was a record number of weddings. There were weddings every day. Glenn Hughes went to the first wedding. I mean, people were just getting married left and right because they lost so much and they wanted to belong to someone, to care for someone and have someone care for them. So there were a lot of immediate post-war marriages. It was an incredible coupling of people. And it was kind of complicated because sometimes people were matched with somebody not from their background, right? Their socioeconomic background, their religious background. There was a lot of interesting marriages. Most marriage survivors, some marriages were excellent and from similar backgrounds. Some were very different, but almost all of them stuck together and hung it out for the long haul. Anyway, so the rabbis issued a special Jewish marriage contract, a ketubah giving, saying there were 420 men and 300 women who had been married and didn't know the fates of their spouses. They were granted permission to remarry with a caveat. There would be some provisions for some material thing, substances or, or things if, if the other spouse happened to show up, if you happen to learn later. And sometimes people learn years later. It was a crazy chaotic time. The other thing was something that this um, Holocaust scholar Attila Grossman calls biological revenge. Immediately people started having babies. It was like the largest baby boom in human history. 2000 babies were born in the Glenn Hughes hospital after the war, in the years after the war. So with babies comes the need for kindergarten, preschool, some kind of education and life revolved around these really young families. Remember, they were in a holding pattern. And sometimes it wasn't only the survivors of Belzin. It was survivors from other parts of Germany and Austria. And it, people came to Belzin, first of all, to look to see if any of the relatives survived. And some people stayed there because of its vibrant community, DP community. <clears throat> and there was enormous resourcefulness and creativity among the surviving inmates. This woman here was determined to get married in a white wedding dress. So her, what was her husband going to do? He worked in the canteen and he traded like a couple of cans of coffee beans and some cigarettes for a, a German officer's parachute. 
and a seamstress in the camp crafted this beautiful wedding dress out of parachute silk for this bride. And this dress is on display at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum. This woman was called the Bride of Belzen, Gina Turgal. She married a British soldier and they married in a nearby town of Lubeck. And they had a British army soldier's parachute silk and this dress is hanging in the Imperial War Museum in London. And this girl, this is just an example of the kinds of things that people did. This 19 year old girl, German army soldier's socks. She unraveled the wool and knit herself this sweater. Then there was, within a few weeks, there was a theater um, that miraculously just formed. Some people were talented actresses and actors. The, they had no scripts, they had no music, but what they decided to do was perform these situations that people had recently lived through. The separation of a mother and child in the ghetto. And they had this audience of a thousand people in Bergenbills and like bawling their eyes out, crying. It was so cathartic. And at the first performance, three weeks after, they they had the first performance and the entire audience of a thousand people got up after and sang the partisan song, Zognik Kalmo, and then Hatikva. So it was a very moving kind of communal experience. And the other thing that happened at this DP camp of 12,000 people is that the Organization for Rehabilitation and Training, ORT, came and tried to give people some skills. Like they're in this waiting period, this holding pen. They don't want to just waste their time. They're trying to ready them for life after. So here you see a dental technician shop, a machine welding shop, and seamstresses. So ORT is trying to give this opportunity to these young people who have their lives ahead of them. And the other interesting thing about the DP camp is that the 12,000 people, they needed to keep order. So they had this police force of 125 men uh, that were Jewish police keeping order. This guy was known as the motorcycle cop of Belson. And now at the Glen Hughes Hospital, um, here's a sign pointing to the Glen Hughes Hospital. This is a birth certificate of the second child born there already in 1949. And this is, was an artist who was there who did a series of 11 drawings while he was in the hospital there. And this is the 11th one and it said, we survived, what now? What now? This was a burning question, what comes next, what now? And they also had this beautiful uh, newsletter, Our Voice, it's called Green Ink Was a Real Novelty and talking about wanting to be led into Palestine, the Jewish state and all, all kinds of articles. And this magazine is still in existence, Our Voice. You can find it on the internet. It's being produced beautiful. Uh, copies are being produced in Israel with a lot of good articles. I'm just gonna share with you that um, my mom, um, being that she was so young and she was so sick, she could not make a single decision for herself. And um, she survived with, out of her family of 32 family members, just she and her older sister were the only ones who survived. And um, they, uh, the Swedish government in a humanitarian gesture, and for certain reasons of their own, decided to take in about 7,000 of the very sick survivors and aiming to rehabilitate them, put them on their feet. Six months, they'll be repatriated. Of course, everyone's thinking repatriated, you go home. Well. It doesn't exactly, didn't exactly happen like that. Here was my mom. This is the very first picture I have of her. You can still see that she had been badly beaten up at the end of the war. She has black and blue marks under her eyes. And she's very sick. Here she is in the first hospital she was taken. Uh, there she is. And she was, um, she lived in Sweden. She would live, was there for 10 years in and out of TB sanatoriums. And fast forward then to the epilogue, just a few pictures. I have completely different pictures in the book, but I just wanted to show you. This is Glenn Hughes at the time. You could see the seriousness in his eyes and the sorrow. And here he is post-war. He was, um, he was, he had a lot of different interests. He was very involved in a lot of things. He was father figure of rugby football. Here he is um, as a golf uh, person playing golf. And he was very involved in that. But he also was very um, 
very involved with survivors for the rest of his life, went to Israel for every anniversary of the liberation of Bergen-Belsen and every commemoration. And yeah, he, um, I don't know if any of you have had any kind of experience with hospice, but he was one of the people who inspired Cicely Saunders, the founder of St. Christopher's Hospice. And it may have had something to do with his inability to help so many people die in a comfortable way. Um, so anyway, I tie that together. This is my mother when she's a young lady with her sister in Sweden. Um, and this is my father. He's in the displaced persons camp. And this is my parents' wedding picture. And this is my mom. She died last year. And it was very sad. She died just after she turned 93. But here she was. She was speaking to school groups. She spoke to thousands of kids uh, really around the world once the pandemic happened and she had to go on Zoom. But um, she was pretty well known in her community as a survivor. Yeah, she was, I, I think she was probably one of the youngest survivors of the death camps on Long Island. So that is my presentation. <clears throat> if anyone, if any questions come up for anyone, you could always reach me through my website as a contact. It's www.bernicelearner.com. This was a sign that was erected in Bergen-Belsen um, immediately after the liberation. 10,000 unburied dead were found here. Another 13,000 have since died, all of them victims of the German New Order in Europe and an example of Nazi culture. And the grandson of this guy, Nicklin, who <laughs> designed the sign, colorized it. So, but that was the sign. Anyway, that sign's not quite there anymore. But I'm happy to answer questions. If anyone is interested in the book, I have a discount card with a discount code. If anyone is watching this online, you can get the book through Johns Hopkins University Press. And if you use the discount code HTWN, you can get a significant discount on it, it's HTWN. And of course, you could also get it on Amazon. And if anyone would like, even if you're not here, I'm happy to send you a book plate, a personalized book plate. Has Dr. Lerner seen the Bergen-Belsen death camp? Yes, I've visited. Not a question, but just an appreciation. My mother was also liberated by Bergen-Belsen on April 15, 1945. And she and her sister and their mother were befriended by a British soldier with whom they re remained in contact with for many years after the war. My mother did not speak very much about Bergen-Belsen, but I found this presentation very interesting and illuminating. The DP uh, camp, sorry. Uh, Marianne clarified that. That's really interesting. See, personal relationships happen. If I would have written a work of fiction, I could have said something more romantic about my mother and Glenn Hughes. Like he had a son her age back in London. He would have adopted her, right? Like if I, But everything in the book is true. Yes. Um, where where is Bergen-Belsen again? It's northwest Germany. It's um, it's not too far from Lüneburg. It's just north of the town of Sella. It's it's part of the beautiful beautiful countryside, part of the Lüneburg Heath. Okay, and and what's the relationship uh between that and Auschwitz? Or was there a relationship? There? The relationship between Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen is Nazi. SS officer Kramer came from Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen, and so did a lot of his people that he worked immediately under him. A lot of the SS came from working in Auschwitz, and then was shipped to, to Bergen-Belsen. That is a pretty strong relationship, because they, they did their horrors, and they did their sadistic deeds as overseers and masterminded you know, Nazi officers in Auschwitz, and then they came to Bergen-Belsen. But Bergen-Belsen was a situation of omission. Like they didn't have, like they didn't have enough bedding, enough supply, nothing for the inmates at all. As one survivor said, Auschwitz was a spick and span hell. And, and uh, Bergen-Belsen was another kind of hell entirely different kind. Of. Because in Auschwitz, you saw people either in healthy form or they, you know, they came freshly from home or they were gassed. They died right away. In Bergen-Belsen, you saw people who were already skeletons. They had been through so much, and they were starved. They were emaciated. They were sick. 
just one thing. Um, where did Ali Vital go after the liberation? He, I think, he, I believe he went to France. He was liberated in Buchenwald, and I, I think he, I know he was educated in France immediately after the war. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we really appreciate you, uh, Dr. Lerner, for your time today and your incredible book. Um, I look forward to reading it, and I know everybody here enjoyed an incredible presentation tonight. Uh, Thank you. A lot of us, uh, it was a hard presentation to watch, but um, I feel like we learned a lot, and I know that the memory of your mother will always be a blessing, not just to you, but to every single one of us in this room and to the hundreds of kids that she was able to touch. So we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.